Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We know that we, we come to each one to you individually, and you, we know that you want us to come together, to worship together, to be a family, to be the family of God that you chose to, to, to define. So Lord, as we are here today, let us share how, how you work in our lives and how wonderful it is to be part of the family. And let us keep our, our minds and hearts open, Lord, that we hear and understand your message even better. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's worship our Lord. Good morning, folks. Uh, as I was kind of going through the devotional this morning, I saw the one for today, and then I looked back at the one from yesterday. And I'm going to give you a double dose this morning. Um, things that cannot be shaken. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be uh, shaken. This date of September 11th will be engraved in the memories of our people everywhere for generations to come. On that terrible day when terrorists commandeered several passenger planes and killed thousands of innocent people in New York and Washington, D.C., we began to realize the true depths of the evil that's in the human heart and the uncertainty and fragility of life itself. What lessons would God teach us from such an appalling tragedy? I confess I don't know the full answer. Many people I know for the first time face the shallowness and emptiness of their lives and turn to God as a result. Millions came together to pray. But one lesson God would teach us in all of this our only lasting hope is in him. Life has always been uncertain. September 11th only made it clearer. Where will you turn for your security? Put your life in Christ's hand, for he is the only one that offers a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The hope for today, if we live for if tomorrow is a guarantee, but it's not. What if today were all we had left? Angels waiting. We would live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. God's command to live righteous and godly lives should sober us, for the Bible tells us that our lives are heaven's primary concern. Paul said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ and the chosen angels that guard you and keep you. Think of it. Even the angels of heaven are constantly watching how we live as Christians. It is merely curiosity on their part, idly wondering if we will fail or provide or prove faithful. No, they know the hour is urgent and that we do what is important. Eternal issues are at stake and we are in the midst of a cosmic struggle. Don't think it doesn't matter how you live your life, but it does. It matters to God, and it matters to his holy angels. It also matters to those around you. Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Imagine all the hosts of heaven watching with bated breath, wondering what you will do next. Your life matters, and the choices you make matter. 
live with a purpose.
it's said that everybody knows where they were on 9-11. But do you know where you were in August of 1987? I didn't think so. I know where I was. I was on a mountain in Northern California, 9,000 feet in the Trinity Alps, with three other men, and we were on a fasting backpack. Kind of contradictory, isn't it? But we were of one mind to seek the Lord. And so I set out on a Saturday morning with my Bible and walked along the trail and thought, how am I going to hear God and what is he going to say to me? I walked for 14 hours, didn't see a soul. Finally found a little creek with nice, fresh, melted snow water in it drank of that, opened my Bible, and for some reason wound up in Second Chronicles. Not my favorite spot. <laughs> but I've carried the message that God gave me that day for 34 years, trying to find application for it in my life. And I've found it, and it's fit, and this time, when I looked at it again, it was even more to the point of my life. There's a promise in here, there's a warning in here, and there's something for us to do. So I'd like to read that now. It's 2 Chronicles 15, verses 1 through 7. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa, and said to him, Asa, by the way, is Solomon's grandson. He's in the line of the kings of the southern two tribes. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation, and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you be strong and do not let your hands be weak for your work shall be rewarded. And that's the verse I've taken with me for 34 years and I, I don't think about it every day but every year I do, <laughs> a little bit long about that time. To be strong and do not let your hands be weak for your work will be rewarded. Our work here is to believe God, to trust God, to know his ways and walk in them. And would you stand with me while we recite the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I'm not going to suggest that you greet one another, but that you will welcome one another in the name of our Lord. Good morning. The next song that we're going to do was written by Miss Kitty Donahoe as she watched the events unfold on 9-11. As I watched it this year, I was struck by the similarities to another September a long time ago when America was under attack. Francis Scott Key, in September 14th of 1814, penned the Star Spangled Banner as he watched the shelling from the British ships on Fort McHenry. This video and the song this year was produced in special remembrance of the 20th remembrance of 9-11. And please, if you, will, if you want to sing along with it, you're very welcome to, or if you just want to watch, welcome to do that too.
Our New Testament reading today <clears throat> comes from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world, world of wickedness corrupting your entire body, it can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father. Sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pour out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you cannot draw fresh water from a salty spring. To join me now in a responsive reading. I arise today through a mighty strength, God's power to guide me, God's might to uphold me, God's eyes to watch over me, God's ears to hear me, God's word to give me speech, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to shelter me, and God's host to secure me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, all belongs to you. All came from you, and all will ultimately go back to you. But in the meantime, you've entrusted things to each one of us as you, as you see fit. But you tell us that we need to share. We need to give back so that your kingdom may grow, so that others who are not as, have not been as blessed as we are, can enjoy the fruits of, of your, your wonderful bountifulness. So Lord, the gifts that we give today, we ask that they, that they be blessed and that you, uh, you guide our session to use them in a wise way that will benefit your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You want to rise for the doxology?
pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your abundant goodness. We thank you for your word. And Lord, your word is that which continues uh, through high times and low times, through tragedy and, and uh, successes and wonderful times. Your word endures forever. Your word is forever. That no matter what happens to us as a country, no matter what happens to us as individuals, your word stands strong, firm, solid. And heaven and earth will pass away, but your word stands strong. And we count on that this morning. We look to you, almighty God. Speak to us out of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to begin a, a new series. Um, and it's on Genesis 1 through 11. So um, it, it really is, I mean, the words that we're going to talk about today are in the beginning God. Um, and that is really describes um, the beginning. I mean, that, that really is where all things started. And I want to talk, so I want to talk about that, what that means in the beginning God. But then we want to talk and in, in, in contrast two different worldviews. Because what happens is that um, in four words in the English translation, three words in Hebrew, um, there, is, there is a division that just, if whatever road you start on is going to make a radical difference in your life and in what you believe. And one of them is what we could call a secular humanist worldview or you know, whatever kind of terminology you want to use, but it's a, it's a, it's a worldview that says there is no God, and the other one is a worldview that says there is a God, and because there's God, then all kinds of things follow along with that. And so we're going to talk, be talking about that. Um, and I think it's really relevant because so many um, young people today and so many people in America are, are departing from a, what we could call a Judeo-Christian worldview um, and toward more moving towards secularism, moving toward a view that does not include God. And there's a huge, you know, I mean, we face it all the time. It's constantly on the television, constantly in the music we listen to, constantly we are bombarded with this secular worldview. And, and so it's really important that we understand the difference between the two. Um, it's said that about, um, well, a survey, that about 10% of Americans identify as atheists. And the, the number has gone up drastically. Um, and approximately, this is the, the, the one that's really hard for me, about 40% of American atheists are ages 18 through 29. And... 37% of atheists are ages 30 through 49. So we face, I believe, a culture in which uh, many of the young people um, are, really have a secular worldview. And it's up to us as Christians to counter that with a Judeo, what we call a Judeo-Christian worldview. What we, what we mean by that is it's, you know, both Jews and Christians, we, we agree on the fact that there is a God. It all starts with a God. 
Uh, we depart with, with Jews over the issue of Christ, but the whole Old Testament uh, we share with the Jews. So we call it a Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. So I want to talk to you about what we call the pre-existence of God. And we've talked about that. We did some of that when we studied Colossians because one of the key passages is found in Colossians. But I want to talk about it in greater depth than we did at that time. So it's, as I say, it's these four words, in the beginning, God. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's Bereshith, Bereshith bara Elohim. And it's, um, you know, the same thing. In the beginning, there was God. So what do we mean by that? Uh, Colossians 1.15 that we talked about uh, actually a year and a half ago says this. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. Now when we say, when we talk about Christ, we're, you know, Christ and Christ is God, and you know, there's no there's no difference. I mean, they're they're individual persons, but uh, the I think as the Council of Chalcedon said, his he's homoousios. They're of the same substance, the same essence. So when we talk about God, we're talking about Jesus. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about God. Um, in, and then John, oh, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with the God in the beginning. So as biblical Christians then, we start from the basic premise, the basic assumption that God exists. Um, and that he created and preserves the universe and that there's sufficient evidence to prove to anyone that God exists. Temporally, he is before all things. Hierarchically, he is above all things. Ontologically, he sustains all things. Now, Wayne Grudem, who uh, teaches at Phoenix Seminary, which is where I got my doctorate, and he said this, um, defining, he wrote a book on systematic theology that's 1,300 pages long. <laughs> so, so, so it covers quite a few, you know, quite a few topics. <laughs> and uh, it's an excellent book. I, I love it. I, I didn't have it before, and I bought a copy, and, and I've used it a lot. But he says this, God's eternity may be defined as follows. God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his being, and he sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. All right, so we're going to unpack that, what that means. When God created the universe, he created time. When God began to create the universe, time began. And there began to be a succession of moments and events one after another. But before there was time, there was God. Before there was a universe, there, there, there was no time, but God existed. God always existed without beginning and without being, being influenced by time. So we see this in the in, uh, book of Exodus, a wonderful story. 
And Moses, if you remember, Moses was in, uh, was in Egypt. He was brought up in the Pharaoh's household. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, and he was brought up in Egypt. Uh, for 40 years, he was, uh, you know, <clears throat> educated in all the finest of uh, Egyptian wisdom and, and uh, knowledge and so on. But then when he's 40 years old, um, he... he um, he killed a man, and he was, uh, had to flee to Midian. While he's in Midian, he is a, sh he's a shepherd. And for 40 years, Moses is just in Midian as a shepherd. And in the course of that, uh, we find Exodus 3.13. Moses said to God, okay, and God appears to Moses in a burning bush. He says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? Okay, so yeah, yeah, okay, that's great. You're sending me to my, the people that I left. You're sending me back to them, but who, who shall I say sent me? <clears throat> God said, Moses. <laughs> and this is, I mean, you know, God said, I am who I am. And, and always when we say, I am, I am Frank Martin, and I, you know, I am, uh, you know, I'm a pastor, and I live in such and such a place, we, there's always an adjective. Um, you know, I am something or other to give us identity, right? And so we, we establish our identity by those things we say after we say, I am. But God just said, I am. I am who I am. And really, so what he's saying I am all essence, all being, I am. You, you, you can't come up with an adjective to describe God because he, he is, he always was, he always will be. He is because he exists independent of any time or anything. He existed in the absolute beginning. And so the name of God signifies I cause to be what comes into existence. So God, being outside of time, could speak into time and create all that there is. And then we see this in John 8, 8. Um, And Jesus is talking with some Pharisees. And so he says this, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And so Jesus, in that phrase... He is saying, I was the one who spoke with Moses at the burning bush. Um, so I am God. I am the pre-existent one. I'm the one who always was and always is and always will be. And then, and then the verse 59, then they took up stones to cast at him. Because they understood this guy is blaspheming God. You know, that's what they're thinking. He is identifying himself as God. And, and that was blasphemy to the, Jewish, uh, to the Jewish elders. So he was telling the Jews that he is the eternally existent one. Another example, um, Nathaniel. And the story is, and this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he's just assembling his disciples. And one of those disciples is Nathaniel. And Philip 
It says in John 1:45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Nathanael says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? He was saying, there's no prophet that comes out of Nazareth. You know, I mean, you know, this is not a high point in Jewish, uh, in Jewish thought, is, is, uh, Nathan- or is uh, Nazareth. <clears throat> well, come and said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And, and, you know, you can imagine meeting somebody for the first time and they say, here is an Israelite in whom is nothing, nothing false. Or here is an American in whom nothing is false. That I, he knew him, um, obviously. Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, we don't know exactly what happened under that fig tree, but what happened was that Nathaniel encountered God under the fig tree. Um, there was some kind of experience, supernatural experience that happened to him. And he, um, and so he experienced God. Well, Jesus said, that was me. I was the one that met you under that fig tree. When you saw God, you saw me. And Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Nathaniel understood clearly that I have just encountered God. So let's talk about what it means then that Jesus is preexistent. He is an immaterial, he's timeless in his being, okay? He's an immaterial, an eternal being. Before God created the universe, there was no matter, and he created all things ex nihilo. We, we call it a theological term, out of nothing. Now that doesn't mean that it's out of nothing in terms of there was God, but there was no pre-existent matter or no pre-existent anything simply spoke and the whole universe came into existence. Physics says that matter, time, and space have to occur together. And so God, who is and always was, who was pre-existent before time began, spoke, and all time began, and, and all matter and everything started instantaneously. Only a God who is outside of time and space can create that which occurs in time and space. Now this is really key because a lot of uh, what we have in evolutionary thought is that um, and a lot of people feel and believe that the universe itself is pre-existent. It always existed. It's, it's endless. It's infinite. And one of the things that you know, physics has come up with and, and cosmology has come up with is that it is not. But God is. The universe is not pre-existent. It's not eternal. But God is eternal. Before there was a universe, before there was a time, God always existed. God does not change, and time does not change God, since he always was. Time has no effect on God's being, perfections, purposes, or or promises. God never learns new things or forgets things. 
The passing of time does not add to or detract from God's knowledge. He knows all things because he is all things. He pre-exists all things. So pre-existence means the absolute beginning before time existed. And that's what it's saying. Before time even existed, God is. It was not a beginning within time, but an absolute beginning, which can be affirmed only of God. So, you know, we look at the universe, and the universe is not eternal, but God is eternal. God existed before time existed. God existed before matter existed. God existed before anything was, and only somebody who, who is outside of time can create that which is in time. Otherwise, you know, it's create, thing, created things created in other created things. But something outside of time, or somebody outside of time, had to create all matter which comes into existence. Am I losing you? <laughs> okay, still with me, all right. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Psalm 102, verse 25. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth. Okay, in the beginning. That is that absolute beginning before there was anything. Second part of it is that God sees all time equally vividly. Now, let me explain that. Uh, today is like 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years from now is seen by God as like today. So God sees all time, everything in time, simultaneously. Um, Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Second Peter 3.8 carries this one step further. It says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now, one um, <clears throat> theologian described it this way. That imagine you're, in a, you're, you're, you're sitting in the grandstands, and there's a parade going by, okay? And so... In that grandstand and looking, looking out, you can see the different parts of the parade go by. You, 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 know, you see the beginning go by, and then, you know, then the, those are on horses, and then the floats come by, and so on. And all of it you know, goes by, but you can only see one little piece of that parade going by. But it's like God is in a helicopter above the whole parade, and God can see the beginning of the parade, you're the piece that you're seeing and the end of the parade all equally at the same time. That's kind of what it's like. That God sees all of time simultaneously exactly the same. He sees each day eternally as well. He sees an extremely long period of time as if it just happened. And every short period of time, such as one day, seems to God to last forever. Everything is always eternally present in God's, in God's mind. And of course, that's the basis of all prophecy. Uh, and just give you an example. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, verse 24, uh, it says this. This is what the Lord says. 
your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by itself. And then down to verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be built. And of the temple, let the foundations be laid. Now, this was spoken by Isaiah approximately 150 years before it happened. Okay? Uh, Isaiah prophesied somewhere between 740 and 680 B.C. And the events as they took, as they took place, Babylon was, was conquered by the Persians in 539 B.C. So 100, approximately 150 years later, God specified and said this is man Cyrus is the one who is going to liberate the Jews and send them back to Jerusalem. So you say, well, you know, how could God predict that even to the, per, to the name of the person, Cyrus, who liberated the Jews? Well, because he saw all events simultaneously, he saw that event and the, and the fulfillment of it at exactly the same time. He sees everything simultaneously as if they are, if they are present right now. So that's why see clearly and declare future events because he sees them he sees the fulfillment of them when they're spoken no matter how much before it you know it was spoken he sees the fulfillment at the same time next part of it is that god sees events in time and acts in time that even though God is eternal, he always existed, he pre-existed before anything came into being, God speaks in time and acts in time. They say, how does he do that? I don't know. <laughs> but, but I'm not God, and he is, and he, he can do that. He can act in time and have events take place in time and in sequence, but yet see them all equally um, at the same time. Galatians 4.4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Okay, so God sent his son at the right time. God, who is eternal, speaking outside of time, spoke into time and said, here's the time when my son is going to come. Acts 17.31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world. So not only did God you know, choose the time when his son would come into the world, but he chose a time when everything's going to wrap up and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So God acts within time and acts differently at different points of time. Again, how does he do that? I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but I've learned that nothing is impossible with God. Isn't that right? Now, the last part of this is this that we, as we are not infinite creatures, we are limited by time, and we are not eternal, only God is eternal, and we will always exist in time. All right, this is an important part of it. Because when we go to be with Jesus, and we inherit eternal life, it is not in the sense that God is infinite, it's the sense that we are eternal. 
We are, we, um, and let me explain the difference. God, I know, I, you've got that look on your face. God is infinite. There, he pre-existed time. He exists outside of time. When we go to be with him, we, it will be time with him forever. But there will be a succession of events in the new heaven and the new earth. It's not that we go and we become like eternal spirits that are floating around someplace. We are going to be in time when there are going to be succession of events in the new heaven and new earth. It's just that they never end. You get the difference? Okay. <laughs> this, is, this is, I know, it's heavy stuff, but it, it's important that you understand that because a whole lot comes out of this, okay? So... Um, what I want to do now is to talk about a contrast between what we call a secular humanist worldview and a Judeo-Christian worldview and some of the implications of that. A worldview is a set of presuppositions, which assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently about the make, basic makeup of our world. So we have... A, it's a philosophical framework that we fit everything that we believe, everything that we think fits into some kind of framework. And as I mentioned at the beginning, there, are, there is a great dividing place in the first four words of Genesis, in the beginning God, or in the beginning there was no God. And it, it just takes you in totally different directions. C.S. Lewis, speaking of of nature said this, ever since men were able to think, they have been wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be there. And roughly two views have been held. First, there's what's called the materialist view or, this, or the naturalist view. People who take that view think that matter and space just happen to exist. And of course, that's the sticking point for those who are secular humanists is that it um, they can't explain the origin of life or really the origin of the universe. They're, they're stuck on those things. Can't, science cannot explain that. <clears throat> and always have existed. Nobody knows why. And that matter, behaving in certain fixed ways, had just ha has just happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. Okay, that's another sticking point with those who don't believe in God is where does thought come from? Where do our thought processes come? By one chance in a thousand, something hit our sun and made it produce the planets, and by another thousandth chance, the chemicals necessary for life and the right temperature occurred on one of these planets, and so some of the matter on this earth came alive, and then by a very long series of chances, the living creatures developed into things like us. Okay, that's C.S. Lewis talking about secular humanism. But secular humanism starts, as I said, with the assumption there is no God. So it's what we call a naturalist worldview because it says there's nothing outside of this, this, what we see in here, you know, the five senses. There's nothing outside of that that comes into this, this world, this existence that we have, this natural universe that we have. There's nothing coming from outside. So we can explain everything just by looking at this world. That's what science does. Okay, now I'm not down on science at all. We're, you know, we'll, you'll, you'll get that. But, 
but um, because science is actually really great, but it cannot explain certain things because it assumes, you know, somebody who has a secular worldview assumes that there is no God. There's nothing from outside coming in. And there were, this humanist view is summarized in three documents. And um, one of them is Humanist Manifesto I, which was produced in 1933. Humanist Manifesto II, which Linda wrote about, um, is written in 1973. And then there's one also written in 2003. So I have put down some of the, just some of the summary of that document in the section on religion. So let's read it. Do we have that? What happened? We don't have it. Okay, we don't have it. I'll just read it. Okay, so this is the section on religion. First, in the best sense, religion may inspire dedication. Now, this is a humanist manifesto. This is humanism summarized. Okay, get the context. The cultivation of moral devotion and creative imagination is an expression of genuine spiritual experience and aspiration. Then it says, we believe, however, that traditional dogmatic or authoritarian religions that place revelation, God, ritual, or creed above human needs and experience do a disservice to the human species. Okay, so in other words, um, in, in other words, all this God talk stuff is actually uh, counterproductive. Any account of nature should pass the test of scientific evidence in our judgment. The dogmas and myths of traditional religions do not do so. In other words, this can all we can do all of this scientifically without bringing God into the question. Even at this late date in human history, certain elementary facts based upon the critical use of scientific reason have to be restated. We find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural. It is either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of the survival and fulfillment of the human race. As non-theists, we begin with humans, not God, nature, not deity. All right, so in other words, um, as I've said, we do not need, we can explain everything through natural processes. We can reason all this out. And we don't have to say there's revelation that God existed before time began and God speaks in history. We can just take it at face value, this natural creation. It goes on, but we can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. While there is much that we do not know, humans are responsible for what we are or will become. And then this statement, no deity will save us, we must save ourselves. All right? And we're, of course, right there, you know, we, we, we as uh, Christians, we say, whoa, wait a minute, you know. Yes, a deity can save us and, and has saved us, and we cannot save ourselves. We will never do it. We don't have the resources to save ourselves. Second, it goes on to say, promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. They distract humans from present concerns, from self-actualization, and from rectifying social injustices. So in other words, let's, you know, they're saying, <clears throat> let's not talk about salvation and eternal damnation. That's beside the point. We as Christians say, that is the point. Uh, that is the point. 
that we can be saved immortally and we can have eternal life and, and, and we can live with Jesus forever. Then it goes on to say, science affirms that the human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. As far as we know, the total personality is a function of the biological or organism, transaction in a social and cultural context. There is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. All right? So in other words, there's no eternal life. It all ends when we die. So let me just kind of summarize what some of this is talking about. First of all, they would say we need God. We are responsible for what we become. In fact, religion detracts from our ability to get the most out of life. We don't need religion. Isn't that where most people are today? We just don't need religion. Secondly, we do not have to believe in anything or anyone supernatural. There's nothing outside of that which we can perceive with our five senses, touch, sight, hearing, smell, and taste. It's all irrelevant. Next, we don't need God to understand the world or our place in the world. It's up to us to make sense of the world. Okay, now we as Christians, we say, no, it's not up to us to make sense of the world. God has made sense of the world, and it's up to us to believe that God has made sense of the world. It, truth is revealed, it is not discovered. Next, we, they say, we have reason and science to inform us about the world. We don't need anything outside of our human reason to teach us anything we can't observe for ourselves. Religion just takes our minds off of that which is really important. Okay? And we say, uh, you know, as Christians, that is the basis. The whole basis of our existence is the revealed truth of God. And then we go from there. They also say the universe came into existence through evolutionary processes. And we don't need to, uh, we won't go into that in great depth right now, but, um, but a couple of problems with that. Number one is the evolutionary theory says that order does not come, or says that, that um, order comes out of chaos. And it's exactly the other way. We, in, in what we observe, Chaos comes out of order. You, you know, you always start with order and then chaos ensues. Anybody that's been in a seventh, seventh grade uh, carpool will understand that. <laughs> chaos always comes out of order. It's not the other way. Chaos does not lead to order unless it's acted upon by somebody outside of that chaos. And secondly, no transitional forms have been discovered. So um, evolutionism stumbles because no transitional forms have ever been found. And that's what uh, even Darwin said, that unless there are transitional forms that are discovered, then my theory doesn't hold water. And we'll, we'll go into that um, again at some, some point. Okay, next, there's nothing unique about men. We're just an advanced type of animal. All right. Well, we believe that we are made in the image of God and that there is something very unique and very special about the human race because we are made in the image of God. And if there's no difference in substance or the worth of man from that of the animal kingdom, um, then we're in trouble. 
Life came from non-love, non-life, from a primordial soup, they would say. Um, how exciting is that? That we came from, we came from a soup. Okay. Furthermore, they would say, we're on our own. We aren't accountable to anyone or anything. We are our own agents. We might as well get all we can while we're on earth because it's all over when we die. Okay? So, the idea there is that we are accountable to no one. And I believe that this is the foundation of, <coughs> excuse me, of those who don't believe in God is that they don't, they don't believe in God because they don't want to be accountable to anybody or anything. They're saying, I'm my own agent, I make my own decisions. Yes, that's true, we make our own decisions. But, but we are accountable to God, and we will give an account to God at the end for how we've lived our life. Furthermore, they would say there's no such thing as truth. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. <clears throat> and tr truth is only discovered through the scientific method. We say, no, truth is, truth is revealed. God revealed truth to us. Furthermore, they'd say all of ethics is situational. There's no good or bad, right or wrong. We say, no, there is, a, there is an absolute truth and there's an absolute ethic, absolute right and wrong. They would say there's no life after death. When we die, there is nothingness. Since God doesn't exist, we will not give an account to God or to anyone how we've lived our lives. There's no afterlife. Life ends when we die. How exciting is that? <clears throat> Furthermore, they would say there's no heaven or hell, no rewards, no punishment for the way we've lived. And they say the history is not moving toward an end, but it's random. Okay, an important point. Men control events, not God. We as Christians, we say God, God orchestrates things. All of history is moving toward a goal. All of history is moving, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God will judge the earth, and all of it will, and all of us will give glory to God in the end. And all history is moving in a particular direction. And they would say that all things are, are that men are getting better, and we by ourselves can usher in a new age of peace and prosperity through a one-world government. We say no. They say, well, we say, yeah, that's true. There needs to be a one-world government, but it's Jesus sitting on the throne. <laughs> and last of all, we're not here, they would say, to please anyone else. We might as well just do what we please, get the most of life out of life while we can. We as Christians, we say, no, we are serving God. We are blessing him. Okay, so what are some implications then of this difference between a secular in a Judeo-Christian world worldview. What's, what's the difference then um, as we take one of those, one of those uh, the, the, the fork in the road toward there is a God and there is no God? What difference does that make? Well, if there's no loving God, no sin in man, no great plan of redemption, there's no fruit of the Spirit, Christmas is happy holidays, Easter is Easter Bunny Day, Man is just a bunch of nerve endings with no special purpose in life. We eat, drink, and try to dull the pain of meaninglessness. In short, if we follow that way toward not believing in God, the world is black and white instead of living color. I think that's the difference. And that we as Christians, we say, you know what? The universe is full of living color. And, and if we do not believe in God, 
Well, it's the same, it's the same creation and everything, but it's all in black and white. There's no meaning to it. There's no absolute truth. There's no justice for those who are evil. There's no absolute right and wrong. Everything is up to us to decide personally. <coughs> There's no absolute beauty. The world is devoid of beautiful waterfalls and so on and so forth. So if there is no God, then I think, and this is what I want to concentrate on this morning, if there is no God, then there's no purpose in life. Um, when I was, I was a teenager, and I don't remember how old I was, and, uh, and it was around Christmas time, and Barbara Wilson, I'm sure you all remember her, um, <laughs> Barbara Wilson was playing hymns on the piano. And I was over at my good friend Teddy Wilson's house, and I heard Barbara Wilson playing these hymns, these Christmas hymns, the Christmas carols, and a thought ran through my mind, and I said, um, I said, I don't believe that stuff anymore. I, and it was a major revelation. I don't believe in that Christmas story anymore. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. And, and a, an incredible sense of hopelessness came over my heart. Just a meaningless and hopelessness. Because that's where we end up if we do not believe in God. Uh, there's a, um, a creed, and this is from a book called, um, by Richard Simmons, and it's called um, Reflections on the Existence of God. And I would, um, both Caroline and I read it, I think she, she read it first, and, and, uh, and no, she, you gave it to me for Christmas or something like that. But anyway, huh? And then you, read, then you read it first, okay. <laughs> but this, uh, this is a creed, kind of a creed that a lot of people feel it's the atheist creed. And listen to this. It's written by uh, an English journalist, Steve Turner. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay, as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sex. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything's getting better despite evidence to the contrary. Yeah. In other words, you look at it, it's not going that way, but you have to believe that. The evidence must be investigated and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe that there's something in horoscopes UFOs and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. <clears throat> they all believe in love and goodness. They only differ in matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. That's a pretty big list. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's, a, that's a whole lot of stuff right there. We believe that after death comes the nothing. <clears throat> because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. So, you know, there were some that were really bad, and they might be headed for hell, but the rest of us were all going to heaven. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected is average. What average is normal. What's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. 
We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Okay? In other words, we're good by nature, society corrupts us. Society is the fault of conditions, conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust, history will alter. We believe that there's no absolute truth, accepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. So that's where, that's where it leads. Um, huh? Insanity and meaninglessness. In a, it really leads to Ecclesiastes 1, um, and it says this, The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, said the teacher. If there is no God, then there's, everything is meaningless. <clears throat> Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. If we do not believe in God, everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing means anything. I want to go back to um, Richard Simmons again and his, and his book, <coughs> Reflections on the Existence of God. And, um, and he, he gives this story, and I want to close with this story. And he says this, several years ago there was a debate held at Arizona State University. I thought that kind of brought it closer to home. Its participants were philosopher William Lane Craig and Douglas Jessup, a professor at North Carolina State University. The debate's topic was, does God exist? Okay? The two men argued back and forth for almost 90 minutes. The crowd seemed to be evenly divided. And neither of the debaters held an upper hand until one of the final questions was posed. A student stepped up to the microphone and asked, can each of you tell us what difference your world view makes to you in your own personal lives? In other words, this is nice theory you've got out there, but how does that affect you in your everyday life? Well, Dr. Craig said that as a philosopher with two PhDs, he had searched in vain for meaning for hope and found it only when he finally came to believe in Jesus Christ. He said that Jesus changed his mind, his heart, his marriage. I came to know joy for the first time, he said. I can't help but want to share the wonder of Jesus Christ whenever I am welcome to give reason for the hope within me. I just can't keep him to myself. Well, you know, that, that gives you hope just hearing that. All eyes were on Professor Jessup, 
after Bill Craig's compelling response. He said thoughtfully that if he had to share his hope with someone, he wouldn't have much to say. This is the fellow who's, a, who's an atheist. <clears throat> and he says this, I'd probably just go home, put on the Grateful Dead, and play chess with my computer. Wow. Yeah. So what difference does, does you know, being an atheist, what difference does that make in your life? Well, really nothing. Author Kelly Kuhlberg was attending the debate, and she said that after Professor made his remarks, there was dead silence. I mean, you can just picture the scene, can't you? And they're just going, huh. <clears throat> then several students gasped as they understood, perhaps for the first time, that there is a connection between what one believes and the actual living of life. That's what we were talking about this morning in, in the Proverbs class. There's a, you know, it's, it's, the, it's connecting the dots in our lives with what we do and, and the kind of life that we live. These students, he says, um, had never thought through their worldview and how it leads to certain conclusions about life. They realized that their atheistic beliefs could account for neither what they saw in the world, nor what they saw in themselves, nor what they yearned for in their lives and in, <clears throat> and in their future. My experience, he goes on to say, is that younger people who claim to be atheists are like these students at Arizona State. They have never really thought through their beliefs, not realizing that if there is no God, there is no designer who stands behind our existence. Therefore, we can only conclude there is no grand purpose to, to life, to the universe, to anything. Life is utterly meaningless. Three, we are alone in this vast universe. There's no God, there's no, you know, there's nothing after we, um, after we die. And fourth, when we die, we go into everlasting nothingness. How exciting is that? Um, so, what we're saying then is this. It matters a great deal, even eternally, when you start your belief system with a belief in God. It matters and in, in shapes your whole life, whether you believe that there is a God in the beginning God, or you believe in the beginning there was nothing. I think this is important for us because I believe that, that there are increasing numbers of young people who simply don't believe in God. And you ask them, you know, do you believe that there's a God? Oh, no, I don't believe that there's a God. And they need to understand, and I believe that this is our job as, as the people of God. It is our job to show them <coughs> that if you think through what you believe that there is no God, it has all these effects in your life. Connect the dots. Connect the dots in your life. See that believing this takes you here. If you believe in God, it takes you over here. And it makes an eternal difference in terms of what we believe and what we set our hearts and where we set our, the course of our lives. So I believe that we have an obligation to this generation to stand up and say it makes a difference what you believe.
Heavenly Father, let's take these words. We know that you're there. We know that you exist. And we know that you want us to reach out to others, to let them understand that you exist, that you are in control of all, that you created this universe, and that we are here as your servants to follow you, to learn from you, to be better because of our relationship with you. Lord, we want to follow you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with us till we meet again.